Episode 100, Bonus Edition, Interview with Dr. Fredericks. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educators podcast to start your day feeling empowered. Hi, late educators. This is Gretchen from Always a Lesson here to empower you to reach your potential. That's why I call you elite. An elite educator takes the time to invest in themselves. By listening to a podcast just like this one to help hone their craft. Well, today is a special day because we have a guest appearance. I want to help you reignite your passion and potential by learning from another elite educator, Dr. Stephen Fredericks, who has quite the empowering message. But before we dive into our conversation, I want to share a little bit more about him with you. He Dr. Fredericks is an educator and an international business professional who's got 30 years of experience. He started out as an elementary school teacher in the Bronx, New York, where he created and then ran the after school program. Well, when he was working on his master's degree, he was asked to help run an urban education graduate program at another university, and that's where he later received his doctorate degree. I think the coolest contribution yet is that he consulted with the government of Venezuela in creating curriculum for the state run universities. Dr. Frederick went on many years to leave his footprint in the business world, but he still serves on the board of advisors for the School of Education at Indiana University, and he still consults educators and researchers at other universities like Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Throughout his career, Dr. Fredericks has achieved numerous distinctions, but the most impressive one, I think, is Man of the Year Award. How about that? <laughs> This guy knows his stuff. So now that you know a little bit about him, let's go ahead and dive into the interview. Well, hey, Steve, thanks so much for being a guest here on the Empowering Educators podcast. Well, I'm very happy to speak with you. Well, good. Elite educators around the world are really eager to learn from you today. So I'm going to jump right to it if you don't mind. Sure. Let's go. All right. Well, go ahead and explain to us what is your current position in the educational field? Uh, well, I'm uh, the executive director of an organization called the Sports and Arts and Schools Foundation. And um, I've been here for almost nine years now. What brought you into that? Well, that's more of an interesting story, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, I had um, been in the for-profit world. I worked in the corporate uh, world for for numbers of years, and um, but prior to that, I had been uh, a teacher, and I had uh, also uh, taught graduate school uh, at the, in the graduate school of Bank Street College of Education, and trained teachers while I was there. Um, I have my doctorate in education, but. Um, And but I decided to go out and, and uh, in the midst of all that, get an MBA in finance, which I did, and then got recruited by IBM. And it was one of those moments in time when um, um, we were raising a family, and I thought, you know, I could go out and actually make some money 
since, uh, as we all know, educators don't get paid a whole lot of money. That's right. And uh, even professors don't do not uh, do that well, and uh, financially at least. And so um, so what I thought was I could uh, go uh, work for IBM because they were – I was – I was very happily surprised that they were interested in me, and um, I could do that for a few years. And then my thought was, I'm, I'm going to come back to academia education one way or the other. And uh, one thing led to another, and um, I stayed with IBM for quite a number of years, um, doing a variety of things, including at the end, I was uh, head of mergers and acquisitions for all entertainment and media across the world for IBM, and Doing that, um, I had reviewed a business plan for a, uh, a studio, a, a film, a digital studio in L.A., um, approved it. We took a, an equity position in it, and the next thing I know, the founder called me and said, why don't I come out to L.A.? I was in New York at the time. So why don't you come out to L.A. and um, help me run the studio? Of course, I knew nothing about the film industry, um, but... Um, but we decided to do it. So I, I left IBM and went to Hollywood. And, uh, goodness. yeah, it was a little strange. And, <laughs> but we were, we, then that became very successful and we worked on like major, I mean, we, we were the guys who did Titanic and things like that. We were, and we did music videos and TV commercials. We were all over the place. And anyways, so I did that for a number of years out in L.A. and then uh, got uh, wanted to come back to New York, ran a couple of companies in New York. Um, um, one was uh, basically in the Internet search business. Another one, last one I had, was where I was head of a company in the advertising industry. So I was kind of bouncing around in different stuff, you know. Right. And, um, and then... Um, I had a, uh, a discussion with a fellow named Skip Hartman, and Skip was the founder of the uh, you know, Sports and Arts and Schools Foundation. And what they were looking for was somebody who, um, you know, had background in education, so they got the educational mission, and but also had a background in the business world because they needed somebody to come in, and, and basically the remit was professionalize the organization. And, uh, so, you know, the, you know, Skip thought that given my background, why wouldn't I want to come in and do that? And I, and I thought, you know, it, I always remember back to the point where I said, I'm always going to come back to academia or education one way or the other. And this was, uh, this was an interesting opportunity. And I said, you know, I think I've had enough of the corporate world. I'm going to do it. So once again, I took another career path turn. And joined uh, what's called SASF is the short for that, and um, and here I am, almost nine years later, and still doing it, and very happy to do it. I cannot believe the twists and turns in your story. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say that starting out as a teacher was helpful in these other pursuits? Did you find yourself relying on on those skills that you learned along the way? Uh, it was, and I'll t I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, there's a few things that that um, that I experienced uh, going through, uh, you know, both my schooling and and uh, when I was teaching. And um, but the one thing that that 
pulled it all together was the, the notion of intellectual rigor. And I, and I say that um, uh, in the following sense. I remember when I was high, in high school, I was in an honor, honors English class. And, of course, we all, we in this class thought we were God's gift to, to English writers. And, you know, and, and I remember... Um, we had handed in some essay or whatever it was, a short story. And, and, uh, my teacher got up in front of the classroom when we were giving him back. He says, gee, I want to read everybody, uh, you know, an excerpt from one of the submissions from one of you. And he started to read mine. Oh, and I was thinking, Oh, I'm very proud of this. And he says, so this is the perfect example of a run on sentence. Oh. And, and I said, it was, and I said, you know, so you could take it. I mean, you know, I was very, I was, I was kind of embarrassed. I was upset, but right. on the other hand, you can go one or two ways with that. And I decided that, you know, um, he was right. And so I really needed to, to really think much more seriously. And, you know, when I, when I do these things, don't take anything for granted, um, and jump in. The, the next thing was in, in graduate school. Um, I had a, a professor, I, I, I was getting a, a master's in political science and and um and this was at a, a place called the new school for social research and this was a this is a um a school that was started by uh intellectuals uh who were refugees uh from world war ii oh, wow. uh, so they came mostly came from europe and you know it's very they're very rigorous in the way they approach uh, uh most academic uh, subjects and this this prof was relentless I mean, he was like you really had to know what you were doing when you walked into that classroom you had to know what the subject matter was etc uh, which was good for me because it just really really pushed me so now i i turned to teaching and um the first teaching position i had was uh i was born and raised in the bronx and when i when i applied uh, for a teaching position in new york city um, the positions that were obviously available, it's true today as well, are the positions that nobody else wants. You know, they're in these really underserved communities and these uh, what I'll call failing schools. Um, and so uh, the first position I was offered was a position in South Bronx, which I, which I was actually more than happy to take. And, um, and I went in there and... Um, you know, it was, it was an interesting transition for me because now, I, you know, I come from this uh, background of, you know, really, you have to buckle down, you have to study hard, everything. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I was fully, I know I wasn't fully prepared for the fact that, um, you know, not everybody has the um, uh, opportunity to be able to just focus on their studies or whatever. And now I, you know, I ha ended up with, for example, a sixth grade class where, um, these kids, uh, you know, they didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. This wasn't, you know, this, you know, so, so my expectations had to radically change. Not that I was lowering the bar, but I just had to actually raise the bar because I had to uh, deal with a lot more, um, I'll call them variables than, uh, than I had to deal with when I was growing up. And so, um, and that really, um, th th that experience, uh, teaching in the South Bronx, and it was in Fort Apache, which at that time had the highest homicide rate in the United States. So 
It was, a, it was another factor that was in this. Uh, but that experience really shaped me going forward. And um, when I did go for my doctorate in education, uh, I became deeply involved in uh, what at that time was called the alternative school movement. Um, but it was really trying to come to terms with what do we do for these kids that are in these underserved communities or in these underserved schools and, uh, you know, what can we bring to that um, situation that can, you know, help to raise them above it and get them, you know, hopefully with some hope that they get beyond the situations they're in. And, you know, it's a struggle today. It's, it's partly it's 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 goes to the very core of what my current organization is all about. So. I mean, it's a long answer because there's a lot of things that uh, I was involved in uh, uh, when I was at Bank Street. Um, We were, I was chairman of the histories, principles, and philosophy area. So I, you know, was, ended up uh, getting involved in um, areas of uh, stages of moral development. And um, and Bank Street was very committed to, Piaget's work on um, stages of cognitive development and um, and how you view the you know how you work with the whole child and we were training teachers but most of these teachers wanted to go to the progressive schools in New York City area for example uh, which were virtually private uh, because then they were able to work in environments where which, which coincided with their training and, and their philosophy of education, et cetera, where the public schools weren't necessarily affording them that opportunity. Um, now, um, I've concluded over the years, and certainly while in sports and arts, that the real challenge, in my view, is in the public school system. And um, unfortunately, um, there seems to be, a, in my view at least, there's a are running away from the public school system in the sense that, uh, you know, this whole debate over, over school choice, um, I treat it like, um, you know, it's kind of like firefighters, you know, they're going to, you know, you run into the fire, you try to put it out, you try to, and you build and running away from the public school system is not going to help the situation because, um, you still have limited space. And, and limited funds, and you've got to decide where you're going to put it. And uh, so, uh, you know, so I'm, so, so my organization, um, part of our mission is is to work in the public schools, and uh, which is what we've been doing. That's, it's so interesting, and I love, you know, your perspective on education about, you know, the problem doesn't go away. So running away and trying all these alternatives really isn't helping anybody. So. You know, I like that, that you're in for the fight and good analogy there. I know that you were talking about working with teachers. So tell me if you were to just describe, you know, in your opinion, what makes an educator great? What would you say? Well, it's not one thing, but, um, you know, what, what I've come away with is, um, and, and it's true today, is uh, number one, if you're going to be a teacher, you better know what your subject matter is. Mm-hmm. Um and and um, and for example, when when I was licensed to become a teacher, I thought it was a joke. I mean, honestly, because it required it, it was called an emergency license, but uh-huh. there's that stuff exists today. But it required 12 credits in education, which I went 
over a summer and took four courses. It was, it was easy to do. And you took a test, a written test, which was, um, you didn't have to take any courses in education to pass this test if you had common sense. And all, and, and you took this test and you got a license and there was no, you know, I didn't even have to do any student teaching. They just threw me into a classroom. Now I, I, I understand it's different, but today, but so the first thing is, um, you know, what's the subject matter you're teaching? And when you're, when you're dealing in elementary school, for example, it, it's everything. It's not just, it's not as if you're just teaching arithmetic or you're just teaching reading or just teaching. So, um, I do think that we, the schools of education, and I sit on the board of one of the, a major school of education today. Um, and so I can speak a little bit of, uh, with experience. You know, the schools of education need to be much more rigorous in terms of the way they educate and train prospective teachers. And, 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 and because I, I just don't think they're doing a very good job of it. And, you know, when I speak to deans, and I have, um, they admit it, but they say, you know, they got a problem because, um, you know, they're competing for students like everybody else is. And, you know, the uh, very often uh, you get, you know, you get two tiers of, of, of students who want to go into schools of education. One is, you know, that they, they really want to be teachers and those are the ones you really want to focus on. The other say, well, I don't know what I want to be, but, you know, I'll kind of a bookmark it and I'll, you know, just get my education degree because it's easy. I've heard that many of and and unfortunately, if, if those students end up in in uh, classrooms, we've got a problem. So I just don't think that the um, that, that teachers are trained uh, very well. Um, that's number one. Um, let's assume that they are trained well. Now the question is, can everybody become a teacher? So um, so for example. I, I get my doctorate and I get an offer to um, teach graduate school. Now, I never taught college one day in my life before that. I mean, I was a graduate assistant, but I never really taught a college class. And all of a sudden, not only teaching a college class, I'm, I'm in front of uh, graduate students teaching. Now, I knew the subject matter well, but it didn't mean that I was necessarily going to be a good teacher because as everybody knows, you have good teachers and bad teachers. Whether they know the subject matter well or not, that's one of the prerequisites. Um, so I think um, there are uh, that we need to train people. You know, there are ways to train people and how you do presentations and how you engage an audience and how you and and we don't do any of that really as far as, uh, you know, for, for most of the schools of education, for example, I mean, if you're going to get up in front of a, a group of people, whether they're, whether they're eight year olds or 18 year olds, you need to engage them somehow or other. You need to figure out how you're going to connect to that audience. Um, I'm sure you face it when you do the podcast, even, you know, you need to make sure. So, um, so one of the things that, <clears throat> I mean, one can say, well, you, you know, everybody would like to have a charismatic teacher. And, and I agree with that. If you had somebody who had, you know, mastery of the subject matter and was charismatic, it's probably going to carry the day. Um, but not everybody is charismatic, including myself. And, um, and so you just gotta, uh, you know, so, so we need to make sure that, that teachers, um, or prospective teachers certainly, you know, have the skill set 
to get in front of an audience and and, and have the wherewith you know understand how they're going to engage that 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 audience and and uh, quite frankly you know even when I give speech or gave speeches you know I, I remember once I was going to give a speech in front of a fairly large audience of salespeople and. That was when I was in Hollywood, <laughs> and everybody wanted to know how we did all these digital visual effects or something. And and so uh, the the company that uh, asked me to do this, um, uh, they had hired uh, people who who actually had trained one of the U.S. presidents in how to give a you know how to give a speech in front of uh, an audience, you know, and how to engage the audience and just things that they and they had me work with them. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. But even, you know, where to look and, and you know, how you, you know, uh, engage with that audience back and forth and, and was was new to me, and which was interesting enough because I'd been around for a while at that point. Um, so I, I do think, you know, if, if I was to say two things, it's one, make, make sure you know what you're talking about. Um, and, and number two, um Make sure that you feel comfortable that you can engage with the audience that you're going to be in front of, and that that you can listen. It's you could call it tricks of the trade, but you need to know how to pull in that audience and get them to be on your side. Um, You you don't want to have uh, a situation where you're fighting uh, to 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 engage them. And you know, if you're going to be in front of a classroom. Uh, 10 months of the year, and you have these kids, same kids, 10 months of the year, uh, if you don't connect with them, you're not going to succeed. And and it's one of the, and, you know, I remember back to when I taught back, all the way back to when I taught elementary school, um, same thing. And, you know, I was fortunate, you know, I connected, but um, but I'm not sure why I connected at the time. And, and um, you know, it was kind of uh, hit and miss for me, and it shouldn't have been. You know, it, sh- it shouldn't have been. But uh, I look back on it, there were things that I was able to uh, do that really should have been part of my training. Uh, I shouldn't have had to find out for myself. And I, and, and quite frankly, I, may, I could have easily failed as well. And, and that would have been really, her- you know, a terrible situation for the kids. You know, you, you have 12-year-olds or 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds in your classroom for you. You have an, an incredible impact on those kids and and if, and if it's a bad experience uh it's very virtually impossible to erase isn't that so true and i know we're spending a lot of time talking about right. you know, giving advice to others but who do you go to to get your own advice as an educator who would you say is your mentor um i don't i don't know that i have a uh, a single mentor i mean i i would i do now. I've been around for a while, so I, I tend to recount uh, advice that I've gotten from a variety of people that you know I've worked with in the past or that I've studied under, etc. So uh, what I what I, what I am um, mostly focused on today is um, I'll call them big policy areas in education. So I mean I'm, I'm a vociferous reader. I you know every day. The first thing I do when I wake up is uh, get some coffee. Uh, I get the New York Times delivered to my door, and I and I literally I read it cover to cover every single day, including the weekends. So, um, 
and, and then I, I do a lot of reading on um, stacks and stacks of books. But uh, I do that because I'm I, I just want to make sure, especially in the world we live in today, which is a pretty interesting. I'll call it interesting. Um, I wish it was more boring, but it's interesting. And um, it's, I, I just think, uh, certainly as educators, we, we need to really understand, try to understand what kind of a world we're living in, what kind of a world we're preparing for our kids, and um, and what our role is going to be in that world. So so I do a lot of background reading, and which which informs me obviously, and um, and what I. What I have been doing, I'm not sure I would call it mentorship, but, um, you know, I have been involved with a number of people that I've met over the years and, and, and I've seen where, where, you know, directions they've gone in. And, um, so in terms of these policy areas, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm formulating in my, in my mind, you know, which ways I think we ought to, would it, where we ought to put emphasis or not in that. Is kind of infusing uh, itself down into my organization. So, for example, um, you know, I became uh, aware of of uh, what I think is a huge problem in education um, um, about I'd say about about two years ago, and um, and and that's that's this uh, an issue I'll call um, excellence gaps. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, the emphasis on in underserved communities and failing schools and a lot of the funding and we, my organization is a very large organization and, uh, but most of our funding comes from uh, New York City, New York State, some federal and, um, and it's focused on you know, closing, it's typical language, closing the achievement gap, you know, trying to to get kids uh, who are uh, not reading at grade level, not not doing math at grade level, etc., you know, getting closing that achievement gap, which is you know that kids who are offered all these opportunities, um, who come from middle class, you know, upper class uh, backgrounds, you know, get the opportunities out there to uh, get tutors if they need it, and you know they they're getting opportunities in to pursue sports, to pursue arts. Uh, a lot of the kids we work with in these underserved communities don't have those opportunities. And um, so one of these areas is uh, we get this funding and you go in and, and we work uh, in the after-school communities, uh, generally, that we provide after-school activities and uh, in sports, arts, and academics. But more than half of what we do is, is in academics. So I'll take that as an example. And... Um, the 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 way you know the way we tend to look at things is well how many kids uh, are reading below grade level and we need to get those kids up to grade level but but it really uh, one of the things I've become sensitized to over the last couple of years is what do we do with the kids who are already reading at grade level or even above grade level um, or who could be reading above grade level um, we tend not to 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 work with them very much and you don't get you know teachers aren't getting credit for the fact that kids are reading above grade level they're giving credit for the fact that well you know they had half of the kids were below grade level now only a quarter so uh, you know so that's so that's good good now it is good but it's not good enough and the reason it's not good enough is because and there's this notion of excellence caps um 
uh, I came uh, there's a, a statistic that really stood out in my mind, which is that um, there are about 750,000 jobs a year that are actually leaving the U.S. that are in uh, uh, areas like uh, STEM, um, et cetera, um, in high tech, um, digital technologies, et cetera. And the reason they're leaving the U.S. is the following. These are mostly people who, um, students, who've come to the United States to study. And um, they study here. And what was happening um, uh, up until, you know, a few years ago was they would study and then they would actually stay in the U.S. and fill these positions because the U.S. wasn't uh, training and didn't wasn't educating enough of our own students who could fill the positions who had the, the now the skill set to fill them, and so um, the work you know the corporations you know whoever out was hiring these people were very happy because they still had a workforce. Uh, now the the countries that these people these students had come from India China etc those economies uh, started to take off and guess what the kind of jobs they were interested in were now available back home. So now they had opportunities to go back home, work in their home countries, and to the tune of 750,000 have decided that they're going to do that. Okay. The problem we have is that we don't, we have um, 750,000 positions that we don't have students from the United States uh, available to fill. And so now I've, you bring that concept back into um, this issue of excellence gaps. The reason for it is that we are not edu educating tens upon tens of thousands of kids who might be gifted and talented and we're completely overlooking them. And what I mean by that, I'll go further down into the weeds a little bit. If you go to a number of what they call these, quote, failing schools, you know, schools where, you know, 60, 70 percent of the kids um, whether it's elementary, middle, high school, uh, are reading below grade level or, or perform below math levels, et cetera, for their grade. Um, you ask the principals, um, by and large, you ask the principals, so how many gifted and talented kids you have in the school? Oh, we don't have any. So the assumption is that because the school, by and large, is a failing school, there's no gifted and talented kids in that school because very few of them uh, are reading above grade level. So you start to look at that and you say, is this possible? Is this possible just because a kid grows up in, in, a, in a difficult uh, environment, whether it's economic, you know, social, economic, etc., um, in one of these underserved communities, just because they grow up there and they're not given the opportunities that kids in, in other circumstances are given, that they're, by definition, they can't be gifted and talented. It's, and it's, it's an absurd notion. The problem is that we have difficulties identifying who are they. If, if they if if they are there, how do we know they're there? And the reason we don't know they're there, we have been able to identify because we use national testing norms to determine whether kids are gifted and talented. And by that I mean, you know, if the kid doesn't test in the top two or three percent on these national, you know, reading tests, math tests, etc., then th those are the kids who generally are deemed gifted and talented. So most of these kids don't test there. Why don't they test there? Because national testing norms don't really make sense for these kids. They're not brought up in, in an environment that prepares them for it, etc. So 
what what I've been focused on and now my organization is beginning to be uh, to focus on it as well is how, how can we go into a school and identify kids based on local norms, based on local testing norms just in the school? Tell me who the top 10 or 15 percent of the kids who test in your school are. And let's layer upon that teacher observations of who some of these kids who you think have the potential or may, you know, or, or may have talents or gifts that you've already identified. And how can we take that segment of your school and start to work with them as well? So this raises all kinds of interesting policy questions, which, um, you know, I, I just think we need to, to deal with because this has, has implications on a national scale for this country. And, um, we can't just go in and assume we're solving one problem. Um, if, if all we're doing is saying we want these kids in these kinds of communities uh, to be at um, at grade level, then what we've done is we've we've accepted the fact that everybody can be average and that's okay. And in a country where, you know, we've heard through this presidential election. Well, you know, uh, this whole notion of exceptionalism, you know, we're an exceptional country, but we haven't been exceptional. This is nonsense. It's, it, it, yeah, we are an exceptional country and we have exceptional kids. We just haven't, we, we haven't identified all of them. And so, um, so we are now looking at, uh, ways of, in which we can, um, start to layer on programs that work with these kids as well. And, I, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you went into, I'm convinced of this, we haven't done it yet, but we're going to pretty soon. If you go into a failing school where, where pretty much nobody would think there's any gifted and talented going on, and there's certainly no gifted and talented programs. In New York City, for example, gifted and talented programs in a handful of schools are only kindergarten through third grade. So then you would question, well, what happens in the fourth grade? What happens in the fifth grade? What happens in middle school? There's no more gifting talent programs in a number of these schools. Um, it was just an article in the New York Times the other day which talked about uh, a school district which encompassed Harlem. And you basically have West Harlem and East Harlem, West Harlem being around, you know, basically divided by Morningside Park. But, you know, it's Columbia University area, et cetera. Those public schools... Uh, tend to have gifted and talented programs. There's waiting lists. People want to get their kids in them and all that. Then you go to East Harlem. There's no gifted and talented programs. There's the, the, the enrollments are declining. Their parents want to pull their kids out. They're pulling their hair. They don't know what to do. And, and that's a perfect example of, of the, um, dichotomy in, in the offerings to kids depending on where they're living. Okay. And where they're growing up. So, we're we're looking at this and and saying what can we do about it and um and I think we're going to start to look at some programs in the after school environments that we work in uh where where currently um we don't believe there's any organization we, uh, I'd love to know if anybody knows of any but uh of where they work in these uh, communities uh, in the after-school programs and provide gifted and talented opportunities as well. Um, we're not aware of it, but we, we think we're going to um, um, initiate that pretty soon. Right. Now, um, it, one other factor I'll bring in, then I'll stop talking for a second. Um, 
So the issue of gifted and talented uh, sometimes raises the hackles of people because they say, well, you know, what you're really doing is ability grouping. It used to be called homogeneous grouping, etc. And my answer is absolutely. And that there's nothing wrong with it. In other words, um, if you had a classroom um, of 30 kids and 60%, 70% of the kids were reading below grade level, as in, I'm being simplistic, but let's say let's give that uh, as a given. Um, you're most likely you're going to focus on those kids who are reading below grade level, and you're going to assume that the kids who are at grade level or above can handle things on their own. So they're going to be they're not going to, so they're not going to be engaged that much because what you tend to do is you you, you almost have to teach to the lowest common denominator, especially when you don't have the you know the um, the help that you need. Um, so, so by ability grouping, by let's say taking a class where kids are exceeding, then you can focus on them, and and then you focus on another class where the kids are not doing very well, and you can more clearly focus on them. I, I think you'd be much more successful. It's become politically um, over the years. Um, Politically, people don't like that answer, but but I think that when they, when people think about it really seriously, uh, they're going to come back to that. You have shared so much with us today. I feel like I'm just learning and growing and hearing from your journey and all your connections, so I appreciate that. But I do want to be respectful of your time, so I just want to ask sure. you one more question, and that okay. is how do you reignite that passion and your own potential as an educator? Well, um, it's a little bit of what I just said, which is, um, for me, you continue to grow in, in, um, as an educator. It's, you, there's never an end game. Um, you know, uh, if I look back at my career, um, you know, every time something else came up, um, you, you can't be afraid of taking a, you know, of risk taking. So, Risk taking and thinking outside of the box for me is one driving force. So, for example, um, you know, this whole notion I just spoke about, I called it excellence gaps. Um, it's, it's really thinking outside of the box because it's not, it's not the current thinking right now. And, um, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's some things being written. There's some leaders in the field, but it's not in the mainstream. Um, but that that ignites myself in terms of you know this this is something I, I could wrap my head around and I can think gee this is uh, an area we ought to pursue. Um, but it's also a matter of are you willing to go in with both feet, jump in, take risks, uh, think think about what could be, not what is, um, and where you you know where you think you can improve. And, and I can't believe that. If, if we look at the urban areas like New York City, Chicago, L.A., wherever it is, um, I tell people the following, which is, which is true. When I went into my first elementary school in the Bronx, um, I faced uh, a classroom. Uh, I faced uh, a bunch of kids, um, and, um, and that was numbers of years ago, a number of decades ago. Um, when I came to Sports and Arts, uh, which was back in 2008, uh, I remember the first time I walked into. In fact, it was interesting because my elementary school 
and my middle school and my high school, because I went to public schools all through New York City, um, which were which were considered really good schools when I went to them. Um, and we were like lower middle class neighborhood kind of a thing. Um, uh, we're all now uh, considered failing schools. <laughs> and my organization was working in them on grants we received because they were failing schools. It was fascinating. So I went back to, for example, my middle school uh, and I walked into a classroom and if if I didn't know what year it was, I would say it was like it could have been the year that I started teaching. I didn't see anything that changed for the better. Oh, wow. And and this is that was really distressing to me. And um, and it, and I, you know, we can go on for a long time about why that's true. And for me, it's unacceptable. So I started to think about okay, what is it that we could do that would actually make a difference here? And it has to do with you know, issues of, um, you know, what are we really looking at when we go in and, you know, just throw this out. You know, if, if, if a child goes to school, you know, let's say nine to three, that's six hours. And let's say we offer an after school program, it's another three hours, that's nine hours. Now that child has 15 hours outside of the school. Well, where do you think a lot of the influence on that child is going to come from? It's 15 hours, you know, that, 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 that's critically important, right? So, you know, what we are able to accomplish in six to nine hours during the day, we really, we better be really good at it, you know? And so I, you know, so for me, it's what would drive me. It's again, uh, not, don't be afraid of taking risks. Don't be afraid of trying things and start to think out of the box, start to, to dream a little bit, you know? And, and when I, I remember a term that, um, uh, somebody who I'm, I'm close to used and said it's dreaming with your eyes wide open, and I would I would leave that turn you know that notion to teachers. Dream with your eyes wide open, I love that. and you and you start to really think about what's possible out there and and go and do it. Try it, try it. You know if you fail, you're probably in no worse position than you are when you started. But if you succeed, you know you're going to be in good shape. So. Thank you so much for your time. Why don't you tell us how we can connect with you if we want to learn more? Sure. So, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm at the Sports and Arts in, in Schools Foundation. My uh, email is sfredericks, S-F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-S, at S-A-S-F-N-Y dot org. And uh, I'd be more than happy to um, connect with anybody who, who, who would like to speak with me. Great. I'll put it in the show notes so they can just copy and paste and, and okay. send any questions or connect. But thanks again, okay. Steve, so much, and we'll chat soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Wow, wasn't that an empowering message from Dr. Fredericks? He certainly has accomplished so much, not only in his career, but his personal life. I am amazed at all the wonderful contributions he's made to this world. His knowledge is so vast. I can't even wrap my own head around all the things that he knows. A mentor for sure. Make sure you check out the show notes page for details that we talked about during the interview and obviously other ways to connect with Dr. Fredericks. Just go to alwaysalesson.com, click on podcast, and you'll see the episode right there. 
All right, Elite Educators, that is a wrap for this week's special edition interview podcast with Dr. Stephen Fredericks. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. This podcast is a member of the Education Podcast Network, a podcast network that encourages you to think about your profession and succeed in the world of education. Whether you're a first-year educator or a seasoned veteran, there is a podcast for you. All of the shows are produced by educators who want to shape education through meaningful discussion and content. So head on over to edupodcastnetwork.com for more details.